Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Welcome to week five of our series, uh, Rogue Warrior Poet King, The Life of David. I want to start today with a reminder, and the reminder is this. Life rarely goes as planned, right? Uh, Plans are great. I, I work with a whole team. The whole team is a better plan. They're all better planners than me. Headed by Tracy, who is one of the greatest planners I've ever seen. Guy amazes me. But Ryan's good at it. Cheryl's good at it. Becky's good at it. And Shelby's pretty good at it. I'm the one that I just, I, I live in the moment way too much. I don't see ahead the way I need to sometimes. And it causes problems once in a while. I'm just not a great planner. But I work with some really great planners. And plans are great. But as good as plans are, the reality is this. Reality is greater than our plans. Reality always trumps plans. Reality always wins. You can make plans. Doesn't mean reality's going to recognize it. Things don't always, always turn out the way we wanted them to, sometimes because of what other people have done, and it impacts our life. But sometimes that happens because of something that we've done. And at the end of the day, what this means is some of our dreams won't come true. But it's worse than that. Some of our dreams can't come true. The two of you may not live happily ever after. You may not have an opportunity to walk your daughter down the aisle. That second marriage may start to feel like the first one did. That prodigal son or prodigal daughter may not be coming home. You may not get into that school. She may marry him anyway money may always be tight here's the thing depending on what kind of church you went to and if uh, you know if you have a church background if you have any at all as we we see our dreams crumble and things aren't going in the direction that we thought they would go there is this internal sense of panic and anger because after all you feel like god kind of promised you in fact you would say maybe god owed you And God owes you because you played by the rules. You did it the way you were supposed to. You did everything right. You raised them right. You saved. You waited. You prayed. And isn't there some kind of cause and effect to all this? And and isn't there some sowing and reaping thing that's principle supposed to kick in? You did everything you do to do things the right way, to play the game the right way, to live the right way, and yet your dreams aren't coming true. Worse than that, they can't come true. In fact, it looks like everybody else's dreams are coming true but yours. And in fact, it can look like God gave your dream to somebody else. And you see what they're going through and you're like, God, that was supposed to be me. So today as we wrap up this series in the life of David, we're going to ask the question that David's life answers for us. The question is this, what do we do when our dreams can't come true? A few weeks ago, we saw that when David was in his 20s, Thanks to the behavior of King, crazy King Saul, David was a fugitive. He was on the run, and, and uh, David realizes, man, some of my dreams are, are not coming true. He had it all planned out. He knew the way it was supposed to go. God had made some very specific promises, but King uh, Saul decided that David needed to be eliminated. I'm going to take him out, which made David a fugitive. And suddenly you start to see David in the wilderness, and his world starts to turn upside down. Things are not what they need to be. And when things 
didn't go the way David thought they would go. David did what many of us do when we realize our dreams aren't going to come true. He panicked. And when he panicked, he made bad decision after bad decision, and people died. Innocent people died. But during that season of his life, he learned a very important lesson. As king, he would undermine his own dreams coming true. And the lesson he learned then is a lesson that he learned in his life. It's a lesson for all of us. About 22 years after David became uh, the king of Israel, that's, that's, that's really where we left off last week. David was going to become the next king. About 22 years after that, he's in his 50s now. Now, in our world, 50s is not a bad number to be in. Okay? You, still, you still got your good looks and your charm and you, most of your teeth. You know, it's, it's a good... Yes, it's good. But if you're 50 in David's day, it's not good. It, you know, it, just not good. You, you're, 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 you know, you probably lost most of your teeth. You've lost your good looks. You, uh, you know, you're not as handsome. You've, the cool factor isn't there. You probably smelled bad. Um, so now he's not cool King David the way he was accustomed to being when he was a younger man. Now he's an older King David. And when his men go off to battle, he does not go with them. We don't know why. Maybe it was his age. Not really sure why. But on this particular story that I'm going to tell you, David does not go off to war with his men. He should have been with them. The king always went. David doesn't go. He gets up one night in the middle of the night. He's walking around on the, the, the roof of this palace, and he's, who knows what he's doing, you know, surveying his great kingdom. Maybe he's talking to God. I don't know what he was doing. Um, but he suddenly looks out, and on another rooftop, he sees this beautiful woman, and she is in a bathtub taking a bath. Now, um, ladies, men know what they're supposed to do under those circumstances, right? They, we know what we're supposed to do, right? That's not what we want to do. And a lot of times, if nobody's around, we, we may take a second glance at the beautiful woman naked, in a bathtub. I'm just telling you, we're human. <laughs> and poor David, he looks out, and instead of turning around and walking away, which is what he should have done to keep himself on the straight and narrow, he lingers. And he looks, and he starts to wonder, what if? And he, he, he doesn't know who that is, but who that is is the wife of one of his good friends, Uriah, one of his best fighting men. He's on the, even now, he is on the battlefield fighting for Israel. And he is a fierce warrior. He's a loyal, loyal warrior to David. But David doesn't know that's his wife yet. So he, he motions, calls for one of his servants, hey, come here. And the servant walks up and he says, who is that? And he says, well, um, king, that is Uriah's wife, wife, wife. That's Uriah the Hittite's wife. That's one of your fighting men's wife. And David said, send her to me. Now, we talked about this at the beginning of the series, but God had told Israel, you don't want a king. 
And one of the reasons you don't want a king is because when you have a king, there are some things that are associated with that that you just really don't want. And one of the things that you don't want is one of the problems with having a king is you can't tell a king no. You can tell a prophet no. You can tell a priest no. You can tell a, uh, you know, a, you can might even tell a commander no. You can tell a judge no. You don't say no to the king. So, the servant goes and gets Bathsheba, and she comes to the palace, and she spends the night. She may have spent several nights. Word comes back, oh no, I'm pregnant. And David, being the king, says, well, I know people in high places. I can fix this. I'll take matters into my own hands. So he calls for her husband, calls for uh, Uriah to come in off the battlefield to get under the, 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 under the guise of giving him a report on how the battle's going. So Uriah comes into town, he meets with David, David's, you know, like, hey, how's the battle going? And Uriah gives him a report, and then David says, hey, why don't you go home and spend the night with your wife and get a little home cooking? And in, my, in David's mind, you know, he'll sleep with Bathsheba, we can blame all this on that union, and, and uh, you know, I'll be off scot-free. Well, Uriah is a righteous man. He does not go home to his wife. He goes just outside the palace gates. He beds down for the night, and that's where he stays all night. He does not see his wife. Well, when David finds this out, he brings him in. He's like, why in the world didn't you go home to be with your wife? He said, how can I go home and be in the luxury and comfort of being with my wife and be in my house when my men are being slaughtered in the mud on the battlefield? So David has Uriah spend one more night and he gets him drunk, and then he points him in the direction of home, and he's like, now, go home. Go home. Uriah doesn't go home. Next morning, David wakes up. Uriah has not gone home, and this troubles David. He knows he's got a problem. Uriah was a good man. So David writes a message to Joab. He gets out. He's, he's going to write this note. He writes the note. He signs his name to it. He folds it up. He you know, closes it shut, seals it with his signet ring. He hands it to Uriah. Uriah is going to carry his own death warrant to his commanding officer. The note is going to say, when you get in the heat of battle, when the battle is the hardest and strongest, I want you to pull the troops away from Uriah and leave him exposed. Basically, we're going to kill him. And again, if you're Joab, you don't tell the king no. You do what he says. Uriah dies in battle. And Bathsheba mourns him heavily. David brings her in. She's pregnant. It looks like David is this generous, wonderful man who is now going to very benevolently raise this child that isn't his David marries Bathsheba, everything is good, and David has managed the outcome. Except, there are no secrets in a palace, because in a palace you have servants, and servants talk. And so there are no secrets in a palace. The walls are thin. Nathan, the, the prophet, makes an appointment to come see David, and he tells David a story and David listens at the story, and as he listens to the story, he begins to get angry at one of the characters in the story. And as he gets angry and he voices that frustration and anger, Nathan looks at him and points a finger and he says, Behold, the man, David, is you. 
this man that you're mad at in this story, this is, that he represents you. And David breaks down, and he allows the law of God to break him. But here's the problem, and I need you to listen to this. Every sin, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, you may be here, you may be an atheist this morning. If you are, welcome to Cross Lane. We're so glad you're here. But I'm Brett, I'm your friend, I'm going to tell you the truth. And one of the things I want you to understand is, sin, when you sin, and you, you might think, well, Brett, I don't even believe in sin. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to help you. Every sin comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. I used to tell this to kids all the time. Life is a series of choices. Every choice has a consequence. And that day, as David mourned his sin, Nathan said to him, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Because David, you're the leader of this kingdom, and now you're going to be accountable before this kingdom. And I'm going to bring about a consequence, and the whole kingdom knows about it. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And again, David, you know, even though he's the king, even though he's flawed, he understands. He does not confuse himself with the king of Israel. David understands, I am a king, I am not the king. He, he, he submitted himself to, to God's law. He broke it, and then he allowed himself to be broken over God's law. And here he is again, acknowledging his fault and surrendering to the will of God. I have sinned against the Lord, he said. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David, this is, a, this is going to be an unavoidable consequence for what you did. You had someone who was innocent, murdered, you tried to hide it, you tried to hide it from an entire nation, a year goes by, nothing happens, two years goes by, nothing, five years, nothing. Ten years later, the consequences start to take hold, and David's world starts to turn upside down. And at the end of the story, his dreams cannot come true. David's son was a young guy by the name of Amnon, and Amnon is the oldest son of David, next in line to be king, but Amnon was consumed with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Uh, Amnon and Tamar did not share both sets of parents. They, they, one was of one set, one from another, um, and Amnon cannot get Tamar out of his mind. He thinks about her all the time, he, you know. He's got a crush on her, and from the looks of things, she doesn't even know, she doesn't give Amnon two looks. Like, she, she is not thinking like that, as she shouldn't. You know, she's, she's just not thinking that way. And Amnon does everything he can to get Tamar's attention. He's just so consumed with lust. So he pretends to be very ill, and all the brothers and sisters know that there's, you know, there's something wrong with our brother here in the palace. So he sends a message to David, and he says, hey, Dad, is it okay if I have Tamar make a meal for me and have her bring that meal to me? And David said, sure, go ahead and do that. So Tamar brings this meal to Amnon. Amnon sends everybody out of the, his living quarters. So it's just Amnon and Tamar there in the house 
alone and he begs and he begs he he acknowledges that he isn't really sick he confesses his great love for for tamar he's you know he, he tells her that he's had a crush on her for a long time and he's been trying to get her attention and tamar says this in second samuel 13 12 no my brother don't force me such a thing should not be done in israel don't do this wicked thing but he refused to listen to her and since he was stronger than she he raped her. And in this next verse, just, you know, the people who bring us this story do not try to hide any of it. That's the beauty of it. They give you all of the dysfunction. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. She's devastated. Everybody knows what's happened. You know, there are no secrets in the palace. Everybody knows that he's done this to her. Everybody In this culture, she'll never be able to marry. She's never going to have a normal life when people find out what's happened with her. There are no secrets in the palace. David finds out what happened. And when King David finds out that his oldest son has raped his daughter, do you know what David did? Nothing. Nothing. We don't know why. But you see, David had lost his moral authority. It could be that David was thinking something along the lines of, well, I've so screwed up my life. I, you know, I, what business do I have speaking into the private life of anybody else and making any kind of judgment? But David does nothing. And now we meet another of David's sons. This time his name is Absalom. Absalom is the third oldest son. Uh, scholars believe that by this time the second son has passed away. And so after Amnon, Absalom would be next in line to be the king if there was going to be a king in his line. And so Absalom and Tamar are true brother and sister. Absalom takes Tamar into his house. He makes sure that she's taken care of and provided for. And Absalom also does nothing about what Amnon did to Tamar. He ignores Amnon. He never speaks to him, not positively, not negatively, has nothing to do with his brother Amnon. A year goes by, nothing. Two years goes by, nothing. And Amnon wants to wait, uh, Ab Absalom wants to wait and kind of let it all fade away. He wants everybody to think everything's returning back to normal and, you know, I've kind of forgotten what happened and, and uh, you know, we're, we're moving on. And so he waits and then one day he decides to have this big feast and he reaches out to his dad and he says, hey dad, would you like to come to the feast? And David says, no, I'll just make it worse. If I come, I'll just, I'm, you don't want me there, son. Don't do that. And Absalom says, well, can I invite my brothers and sisters? And he says, sure. So you, you, got, you guys have a good time. So Absalom has this big feast. Everybody is there. He, he serves them this great big meal, lots of liquor. There's, you know, they're, they're getting drunk. Um, Amnon is there, Amnon is getting drunk, and when Absalom sees that Amnon is drunk, he sends his servants in to slaughter Amnon. And when the other brothers see this, it's bloody, it's, you know, it happens right in front of them, and when they see this, they get up and they flee to Jerusalem. Absalom then makes his way to what we would call modern-day Syria. When David hears what has happened, that his, older, his oldest son has been married by what we later find out is his favorite son, King David does nothing. And life goes on. Three years pass. And David is missing Absalom. And things have kind of settled down. You start to think that maybe things are starting to get back to some semblance of normal. 
So David invites Absalom back to the kingdom, back to Jerusalem, and when Absalom gets there, he is escorted to his house, and he says, you can live in this house, but you need to understand the king refuses to see you. Now, don't quite understand this, but, but there's this passive-aggressive thing in David where he wants Absalom, but he, he kind of wants to communicate to him, I'm mad at you. It's, it's because he hasn't handled any of this well. And so for the next two years, Absalom tries to see King David. King David ignores him. He won't see him. Absalom is furious. He's like, what's going on? You, you bring me back to my house, but you won't see me? You won't talk to me? My family won't speak to me? I keep trying to get a message to my dad? I can't get a message to my dad? What's going on? And Absalom is getting angrier and angrier by the minute. Finally, Absalom is fed up. So he sends his servants to Joab's farm. Remember, Joab is the commander under King David. He sends his servants to Joab's farm and he instructs them, burn the thing down. So these servants go burn down Joab's farm. Well, Joab, again, no secrets in the palace. Joab shows up and he's like, dude, what are you doing? Man, why are you burning down my farm? And then Absalom says, he speaks. It's amazing. You burn his farm down, and now all of a sudden, he's got something that he wants to say. I've only been trying to, to get word to you for two years. You haven't wanted to talk to me. I've been trying to get a note to my dad for two years. You, I couldn't even get to you, and, and now you come to me. Well, Joab knew that David really did love Absalom, and he was just being stubborn. So Joab says, okay, I'll I'll figure it out. Now, Joab was smart enough to know you don't just walk into the king's palace and say, hey, you know, you need to really, you really ought to go see your son. He's upset. And Joab knows he can't do that. So he gets this woman to go in, and this woman is going to tell King David a story. And so as she tells this story, again, David gets upset at one of the characters in the story, and the more agitated he gets, eventually the woman says, King, um, you know, th that person that you're upset with in the story, that's you. And David goes, did Joab send you? And she says, yes, he did. Well, David sends for Joab, and he says, Joab shows up, and he says, King, please see Absalom. You, you brought him back to the palace. You haven't spoken to him. He, he's waited two years. He loves you. He misses you. Have, have, see Absalom. So Absalom comes before the king. He bows down. David kisses him, which signifies all is okay, all is forgiven, except... It's not. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is okay. Absalom is hurt. And for the rest of his life, as far as we can tell, David never has anything to do with Absalom. Well, Absalom is angry. He's hurt. He's upset. He decides to overthrow his father and to overthrow the kingdom. Maybe he thought, you know what? It's all going to be mine anyway. Maybe he thought, the old man's losing it. I mean, what's going on with him? He's acting crazy. I don't understand. He won't even talk to me. So I'm just going to take the kingdom. And Absalom was so smart, he would go outside the city gate, he would set up a table, and as people would come and go through the city gates, they were coming, they wanted to have a, 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 an audience in the palace and have their grievances heard and, and, and have settlements reached so that they could, you know, we have that in life where we need, sometimes need a, a moderator or a mediator to, to kind of help us figure things out. Well, um, it would take you months sometimes, to get any kind of resolution from the palace. So 
Uh, Absalom set himself up outside the gate, and he said, here, let me help you with that. I'll help you with that. Well, all these people start going to Absalom, and he's helping all these people. And, and the people really start to see, man, this guy's sharp. I mean, he loves us. We're falling in love with him. Day after day, he would hear these cases that would otherwise have taken them months to get hurt. And over time, Scripture tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. For four years, he sat outside the city gate hearing grievances of the people in the kingdom. People were able to see how smart he was, that he was a great leader. And over time, they fell in love with Absalom. Four years later, he puts his plot in motion to overthrow his father. 2 Samuel 15, verse 10. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is the king in Hebron. And so these are, they're in all these primary cities. They go out to these cities and they tell these guys, hey, listen, at a certain time, on a certain day, you are to run through the city and you're to scream, uh, Absalom is now the king. Absalom is the king. Absalom is the king. Now, there was no internet. There is no cell phone. You can't text. Smiley face, heart emoji. You know, you can't. There's no Twitter, no Facebook, none of that. There's, there's no, you can't communicate like that. So when you hear something like that, you just assume that what you're being told is the truth. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, you know, maybe King David died. Maybe, maybe he's abdicated the throne in, in, in Absalom's place and, and Absalom is the new king. You know, we don't know, but our hearts are with Absalom. We love Absalom. He's great. So they rejoiced. They were happy to hear it even though Absalom really had not been declared the king. So here we are, 16 years after David's sin with Bathsheba, and David's world is upside down. His firstborn has been murdered by his favorite son, who has now instigated a civil war and is about to divide the entire nation. And then we come to verse 13. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. When David heard this, this was not a surprise. Now I went out and I found a, a description of Absalom that I wanted to share with you. This is from another part of the story, but I just wanted you to hear this, to hear the way the people viewed Absalom. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Absalom was a real looker, and the people loved Absalom. Well, once David hears about what Absalom has done, we read this in verse 14. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. David knew that if he stayed in the city and Absalom gets to the city, he is going to put to the sword everybody in the city because he's going to think, well, they've all sided with dad. And he knew that they would all perish. So David abandons his throne for the sake of the people in the city. And once again, David is a fugitive. Now he's running from this place. He's running from his home. He's back where he's been so many times before. He's running from the people who supposedly loved him. By this time, David is not 22 years old. By this time, David is 61 years old. This was not the dream. It was not supposed to go down like this. This wasn't the way this is supposed to end. 
The golden years of his life were supposed to be better than this. I'm not supposed to be on the run. His dreams were not coming true. In fact, his dreams couldn't come true. And here we are. Here we are. This is where, once again, our lives at some point intersect David's story. We're heartbroken, disappointed, angry, frustrated with God. Maybe looking for somebody to blame. Maybe wanting revenge. Maybe you blame God. After all, where was he? God could have kept all this from happening, and he didn't do it. Where's God? What's the point? Why, why even try? You hung in there with him or her through thick or thin, and now look what they've done. You waited, and for what? You raised him right. You, you deserve to be treated better than you're being treated right now. Look how he's treating you. You were honest, and they told you that honesty was the best policy. So you went to work, and you were honest. And when you told the truth, you got fired for it. And it is here that we often make things worse for ourselves, isn't it? This is where we're, we're hurt, we're angry, we're frustrated with God, we're so disappointed that, that we hurt ourselves, we create more debt for ourselves, we, we create more regrets for ourselves, we, we take more pain relievers, but we feel more pain. This wasn't the first time that David had faced a situation like this, and David remembered, because remember, David had fled the kingdom once before. Only that time he had taken matters into his own hands, but he had learned something along the way, and the lessons that David learned that day and, and through that season, I want us to learn today. Here's what happened. There's now a caravan that is leaving the city. It's David and David's family and David's family's family anybody who supported David, and they're filing out of the city, trying to get away from Absalom and his men. And then we read this in 2 Samuel 15, verse 23. The whole countryside wept aloud as the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, which, by the way, that's the valley that Jesus went through when he was on the way to Gethsemane. And all the people moved on toward the wilderness. David's not even sure where he's going at this point. I mean, it's just this all big... It's a big question mark. He says, we've got to get out of here, and if you support me and you want to be with me, we're leaving now. You've got to go with us. Well, Zadok was the high priest. Zadok was there too, and the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The Levites were the priestly tribe, so they had uh, responsibility for the Ark, and they're carrying the Ark out as David leaves. This is really important. What happens when we read these Old Testament stories a lot of times, I, I think when you read these, you're reading these as a part of a Bible reading plan. And I've, I've told you this before, Bible reading plans are great, but you can't let Bible reading plans be the boss. And too many times what we do is we look and we say, okay, this morning I'm reading in 2 Samuel 15 and I've got 25 minutes. Can I get this read in 25 minutes? And we read it with the sole express purpose of trying to be able to check a box. I'd rather you just slow down if you don't get the whole thing read in 25 minutes, it's okay. But when we get in a hurry, we miss these little nuanced things. And you read this about the Ark, and it's a really important thing. The Ark of the Covenant of God represented 
for the presence of God in Israel. When they saw the ark, it was like God is here. And when they saw it, they didn't feel like they could get any closer to God than when they were in the presence of the ark of the covenant. For some people, it was almost like a good luck charm. They would take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them, and when they did, they, they just knew they were assured victory in the battle. So when David sees them bringing the Ark of the Covenant out of the city of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, and, he's there, and the, the priests are going to take that with them on this journey as they leave town, the people in the city are watching this Ark of the Covenant leave, and they're thinking, oh my goodness, God is leaving the city. But the implications of that were overwhelming for David. Let me address this before it gets out of hand. And David decides, this feels manipulative. Listen to what he says, verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. Now when the people heard David say that, they probably moaned. They, they probably rolled their eyes. They're thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, the only confidence we have is that God was going to be with us as we followed our king out of the city. And when David tells them to take the Ark of the Covenant back into the city, <coughs> the people are thinking, maybe Absalom is right. And maybe David is wrong. But listen to the reason that David has them take the ark back into the city. Second part of verse 25. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, in other words, I'm done trying to manipulate God. I'm done playing games and trying to get God to do for me and recognize me and do it the way I want it done. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it. Talking about the ark. And his dwelling place. Again, the ark. If God brings me back, great. But I am not going to take matters into my own hands. I've done that before. I'm not doing that anymore. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. And then you get this line. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Not my will, but thy will. Whenever I pursue my will, I mess things up. Whenever I try to have my way, I get in the way. Not my way, thy way. David lost his world, but he did not lose his confidence in God. He doesn't reject the law. He considers himself uh, someone under the law. He doesn't consider himself above the law. And when he breaks the law, he allows himself to be broken under the law. He was a flawed man. He recognized that. But he refuses to assume the role of the king in Israel. He always understood he was a king. David chose not to abandon God when it appeared that God had chosen to abandon him. I'm not going to go to war with my son. I'm not going to risk this city and the people inside. This is not about me. God put me in my place, and God will be the one that decides when and if I get replaced. He's going to decide when that happens. He's going to decide how that happens. Wow. 
And David leaves the city. And he leaves the ark. Absalom gets to the city only to realize that David is gone. It's a victory, but it's a hollow victory. His father is not there. He knows that in order for him to assume the throne and to be the ruler over all the people, he's got to put his dad to the sword, and he doesn't have him. He can't do it. So Absalom is in the capital. He's setting up shop in the palace, and he's trying to decide what to do. And then we meet a new character in the story. His name is kind of funny. His name is Ahithophel. Now, I'm going to struggle with this name. It's kind of, say it five times fast. Ahithophel. Ahithophel, we think, was, was uh, Bathsheba's grandfather. He was an advisor to King David, and now that David has left, he walks up to Ahithophel, and he said he wants to get behind the winning horse. He said, hey, I've served your dad for many years. I'll be a faithful servant to you. Let me give you some advice. Ahithophel stays behind in the palace, and he says, I'm here as an advisor to you. And Absalom says, okay, then advise me. What would you tell me? Ahithophel, what should I do next? He says, Absalom, you need to immediately go after your dad. Do not wait. Do not hesitate. Do not collect $200. Get out of here. Go get him. Do not let him gather troops around him. Do not let him get out in a field somewhere and organize and start to plan for a battle. The sooner you move, the better off this is going to go. If you can get to him, you can catch him. If you can catch him, you can kill him. And once he's gone, all the people that are following David out of the city will turn right back around and follow you back into the city. You will unite the kingdom. You'll be their king. But while Ahithophel was there, there was another advisor there as well, and his name was Hushai. Now, Hushai was in the group that was leaving Jerusalem. And when David realizes that Ahithophel has stayed behind, he sends Hushai back into the city, and he says, listen, Ahithophel is going to give him great military advice. He's advised me for years. He knows what he's doing. He's going to give Absalom really good advice. I need you to go in and thwart that good advice. I need you to go in and mess all that up and plant seeds of doubt in Absalom's mind. Don't let Ahithophel have the final word with Absalom. Give him bad advice. So Hushai goes back into the palace. He meets up with Absalom. Absalom says, you've heard what Ahithophel has, has advised me to do. What would you tell me to do? And we read this in 2 Samuel 17, verse 7. Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice of Ahithophel has, the advice at Ahithophel has given is not good this time. Absalom, you know your father and his men. They are fighters and as fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs. Now we read that and it's like a figure of speech for us, right? Like, man, she's, he's fiercer than a, a bear robbed of her cubs. Well, these guys, it wasn't a matter of speech. It was, they'd done it. They'd hunted. They, they'd seen bears that had been robbed of their cubs. In other words, what, what Hushai is saying is, you do not want all the smoke that comes with King David. You do not want that. Besides, your father is an experienced fighter. He will not spend the night with the troops. Even now, he is hidden in a cave or some other place. In other words, don't rush in. You're going to get slaughtered if you go right in there and you don't think about this and get yourself together. Take your time. Wait. Gather the nation unto yourself. And once you've kind of gotten your feet underneath you, then you can go after your dad. Well, Absalom thought that was great advice, and Ahithophel knew when he heard Absalom leaning in the direction of Hushai's advice. He knew right then and there, this is, this is bad news. There's no way David can be defeated out in the open like that, and if you give him time to get himself together, David is going to be laying in wait. So you know what Ahithophel did? 
Ahithophel went home and hung himself. <laughs> You're like, Brett, is this, I mean, this is all in the Bible? This is all in the, you should read your Bible, okay? It's an awesome story. David goes to a city called Mahanaim, and he hears that Absalom, when he hears that Absalom's coming, he realizes, hey, I've got no choice. I'm going to have to stand and fight my son. This is it. This is, you know, high noon. Uh, we're going to come out guns blazing. I mean, let's, let's go for it. So David, being the smart warrior he is, he splits his troops up into three different troops, and he gives them three different commanders. And he, he teaches them how to communicate. He, he tells them what they, they strategize. They get ready. He puts a different commander over each of these three troops. Meanwhile, Absalom doesn't do that. Absalom has just one troop. And he says, David says to his men, when you catch up to Absalom, when you get to him, uh, 2 Samuel 18, verse 5, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. In other words, I realize this is war. I realize, you know, there's a lot at stake here, but this is my son we're talking about. Don't kill him. Bring him to me. Just bring him to me. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So everybody knew, if you find Absalom, take him to David. Don't kill him. David's generals insisted that he not go into this battle, so David stayed behind, and he watches as these soldiers are leaving, and they're going off basically to go to war with his own son, his favorite son. Now, the battle did not take place in an open plain. Verse 6 tells us the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim, which meant that superior numbers meant very little in this case. Experience, organization, communication, those are the things that meant the most when you get into a battle in the forest, and David was very accomplished at these things. This was his sweet spot. This is what he was good at. So David and his men were better prepared for the fight. And remember, David's troops have three commanders, and they're very well uh, uh, situated to be able to communicate with each other. And Absalom, everybody's looking to Absalom for leadership. Verse 7 there Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. And you read that, and you're like, man, that's a weird, that's just a weird verse. I mean, Brett, what does that mean? Well, it just simply means that the circumstances in the forest were not good for fighting. You had low-hanging branches. When you're on animals and you're traveling, that's not good. There were root systems that were hard to you know, kind of traverse, and, and then the, the bogs would get really muddy and soft, and that made it hard for the animals. If, you know, if you had a horse or a mule or a donkey, uh, that would be a problem. And that's really what happens to Absalom. He's, he gets hung up. We're told he gets hung up in a tree. He's on his, his animal, and, and this low-hanging branch catches him up, and, and he gets all tangled up in it. And, and um, uh, Abner, um, Joab sees Absalom from a distance and he goes up to him and immediately slaughters Absalom right there. Well, when Absalom's soldiers see that he's been killed, they drop their weapons and they just start walking home. They realize this whole thing is over. And David is told that Absalom is dead. And when he's told that his son is dead, he mourns the loss of his son, Absalom. Meanwhile, the men are out, and they don't know whether they can even celebrate this victory because they're looking at their king, and he's so distraught. He's mourning so bad. Finally, Joab goes to him, and he says, King David, get over yourself. Get out there and celebrate with these men. These men think that, th that you wish they had died and not your son. 
These men have risked everything for you. And you're in here moping around. You've got to get out there and celebrate with them to show them that they did the right thing. They're looking to you for leadership. But for David, it was a hollow victory because he had lost his son. David would return to Jerusalem as the king, but his world would never be the same. He would die at 70 years of age. Now here's what's interesting about this story. The authors of this story seem to not withhold any of the, the, the gory, bad details. That, that, you know, make, they don't hide anything. They don't make it look like um, you know, David was a perfect guy. They kind of tell us even what, where all the warts are. We get David with all of his flaws. But with all of that, what you see is that David never lost his confidence in God. Whether it was his fault or somebody else's, when things did not go his way, he did not lose his confidence in God. Here's the key takeaway this morning. So if you're asleep this morning, wake up. Okay. Wake up. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is not everything going our way. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. It's not happily ever after endings. It is always a mistake to wrap your faith in God around the fulfillment of dreams or the answers to prayers. My dreams came true, so God is good. My dreams didn't come true, so God isn't good. That's dangerous. That's not right. It's always a mistake to wrap our faith in God around the fulfillment of our dreams and our answered prayers because dreams that don't come true and prayers that don't get answered say nothing about the presence and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. David would be the quickest to remind us when we feel forsaken, we are mistaken. That when things don't go our way, to assume the circumstances have something to do with, with God not loving us, that that's a mistake. David would say, don't make that mistake. Because through the highs and through the lows and through the ups and downs, one thing I know is God was with me. And we know that. I know that. Through the highs and the lows, God is faithful. He's been with me. And we would all do well to join David in this extraordinary statement Every week, man. Every week. Golly. <laughs> we would do well to remember this extraordinary statement that David makes that day he's leaving with his family in tow and he's leaving his kingdom behind and he sends the ark back. And David said this, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. In other words, not my will, but thy will. I know how I want things to go. I know what I've planned for. I know how I've prayed they wanted to go. I thought for sure they would go this way. Thy will be done. I will not lose my confidence in God because things didn't go the way I wanted them to go. I will not choose to abandon God even when it looks like God has chosen to abandon me. David wrote it. We looked at this all the way back in week one. I had you say this with me. We said this out loud. This is David's incredible statement. He said, regardless of how things are going, when my dreams aren't coming true, 
And even when they can't come true, we looked at this passage out of Psalm 25. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust, my hope is in you all day long. I want us to say that together. It's the last thing we're going to do in this series. I want us to say this together. Are you ready? In you, Lord my God, I put my trust, my hope is in you all day long. Good job. I'm not even going to make you say it twice. First service had to say it twice. Bunch of Mamby pamby it was awful. <laughs> Listen, you are surrounded by people who believe that. There are people in this room that could get up and tell you their story about the ups and downs, and they would say, I look back over it and I know God was faithful. I never gave up on him, even when it looked like he had given up on me. I never gave up on him. There is a God, and he loves you. Not my will, but thy will. We will have people down front to pray with you at the end of the service if you need that. Um, as we enter this Christmas season, things get rushed, things get a little more pressure packed. Keep your cool. Pray a little more. Cuss a little less. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Every day we need your help. We, we cannot do this by ourselves. We try to fool ourselves into thinking we can. We think we can handle it. We need you. Father, I pray that we would find the humility that it takes to leave this place this morning to go out and to hit our knees and to serve the people around us. Help us to get over ourselves. Help us to get over our anger. Help us to get over our disappointment. No, it didn't go our way. It's not going to turn out the way I wanted it to go. Let us not blame that on you. Let us lift our eyes and trust you for outcomes. And not see ourselves as the king, but a king, because you are the king. And so, Father, we just pledge ourselves to you anew in this space this morning and tell you that we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.